Good morning. We are grateful that you are here this morning, as always, and the chance to worship together, especially to anyone who is visiting with us this morning. As we have said, we have some who are back with us, some college students that were back with us today, and some who have been away, and some visitors, and we're just thankful that all of you are here this morning and look forward to a great day together. We always try to encourage you and remind you multiple times in our morning service that we'll have lunch, and you can stay and be a part of that. As was said from the bulletin, from the announcements, that we've got a special Special treat this afternoon is we'll look to, to honor Tom and Barbara after our afternoon service. Uh, and I know how much we love Tom and Barbara and how much joy they bring to our lives. And we look forward to, to, um, to enjoying them for a few moments. I don't know if we'll let Tom say anything. I think he could preach longer than I could uh, sometimes. But there's no, nothing like hearing Tom laugh. And if you've been around Tom and Barbara before, um, I'll never forget uh, one of my favorite Tom stories will be that um, not long after we started our lunch and started the 130 service that we were in there together one day. And if you were there, you may remember, and it was more, it was more entertaining in the moment. But, but Tom got so tickled at the table, he was about to choke on his lunch. He was just laughing so hard. He got everybody's attention, not on purpose, but everybody's turning and looking at what Tom is laughing about. And he had told some joke uh, that he couldn't even finish because he was laughing so hard. So Gary Grove had to stand up and tell the whole room why Tom was about to choke laughing after he had told this uh, joke that he had told, but um, he loves to laugh. We love to honor them and, and look forward to, to that this afternoon. So we hope that you can be a part of any and all of our day together today. Um, as I've mentioned before, for the Danleys, we joke a lot that when we get home on Sunday afternoon, we're pretty tired and, and worn out from a long day, but usually it's a good way because we've had a, a good day together, uh, enjoyed a lot of time with friends and family, and so we always want you to be a part of that. I hope that no one thought that I was directing the title of the lesson at them this morning, right, in particular. Uh, this has become a popular saying over the last few years, not that it's new. These, these words or this phrase is not anything that's been invented recently, but I think it's taken hold, like a lot of things do sometimes in our culture, a little more recently, maybe in this kind of way. It's kind of become a popular saying for people to say to one another when someone maybe is being annoying to you. Sometimes people say it sarcastically. You know, someone's kind of picking on them and they say, oh, you're the worst, you know, just kind of sarcastically laughing about it. And then sometimes people mean it really mean. Maybe they're trying to, to hurt someone. They're trying to lash out at them and, and someone's done something to hurt them and they say, you're, you're the worst, you know, and they're, they're really being mean about it. There's even a, a TV show, I think, that, that goes by this title. I don't know that it's very good to watch. I'm not necessarily suggesting it. It may not be one that Christians should be watching, but there's even a TV show that bears this title because it's, again, not new to us, but this idea of looking at someone and saying, you are the worst. If you were with us last Sunday morning, we continued in our Sunday School Catch-Up series, and we took a look, an overview of the kings. And we talked about the fact that while there was the United Kingdom under the 120-year reign of three different kings, the kingdom was then divided into the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. And when we talk about those kings, there were a lot of bad kings. But there's one in particular and I thought it might benefit us to, to kind of focus uh, and look in a little bit at one in particular. If you read through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, there are some kings in which there is very little said about. Maybe just one or two sentences or verses in your Bible. And yet others, we get a much broader picture so that we can learn about mankind. We can learn about God. We can learn about ourselves, even as we will try to do this morning. I thought it might help us. If we picked out just one, and spoiler alert, he's obviously going to be the worst. 
If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 21. And I don't know if you have a a couple of ways to hold your place, but I'm going to give you another passage. We won't get there for a few minutes. There's not really a need to maybe hold your finger there, but if you'd like to place a bookmark or a ribbon in your Bible or something, we're going to begin in 2 Kings 21. But when we get a little further in the sermon, we're going to move forward to 2 Chronicles 33. 2 Kings chapter 21 and 2 Chronicles chapter 33. The king that we're going to talk about and focus in on this morning goes by the name Manasseh. And he is, we might need to say, the worst. Now don't get confused when you hear this name Manasseh. If you know your Israelite history, you'll know that name because Manasseh was also one of the names of the two half-tribes. Sometimes when you hear Manasseh, some of you will instantly think of Ephraim because we'll say Ephraim and Manasseh together. Manasseh then was a human being and a person, but as part of the sons of Joseph, the half-tribes, we're not talking about the same guy. As we move forward to 2 Kings chapter 21 in the reign of Manasseh in Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, we're talking about somebody different. Let's begin this morning by looking at some facts together. There are some facts that we can notice as we think about Manasseh. Number one, he was the 13th king in the southern kingdom. Now, I meant to, I wanted to take some pictures. I don't know if it was shown up very well on the screen. I mentioned to you last week how in my Bible, I've taken the time to go through and and write the numbers by the kings. And so as you kind of turn, you have a quick reference. And in mine, I have a 13 and an S by 2 Kings chapter 21 and verse number 1 because this is the first place that we meet this Manasseh who is going to become the 13th king in the southern kingdom. Now, as we think about the kings, remember last week we said that there were 19 in both. And so we're getting closer to the end of the southern kingdom here. We're getting closer to them going into captivity, and Manasseh is going to reign. Now, as we'll notice here in just a moment, and you'll see if you read through this particular section of Scripture, there is the sense in which it is father, son, 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 right down, so on and so forth. And sometimes that is good. Quite often that might be in a bad sense. But Manasseh was the 13th king in the southern kingdom. And verse number 1 tells us that he was 12 years old when he started to reign. Now I see a lot of mothers in the audience that are starting to quake thinking about a 12-year-old. Their 12-year-old maybe. Someone being 12 years old and beginning to rule over a group of people. He was not the youngest, we know, when we think about the kings, but at 12 years old when he's going to take over. Now, we can surmise, and I think it would be safe to say, that he had people who were helping him. He's not the sole person making the decision, right? Any good 12-year-old would decide that chicken nuggets are going to be the only thing on the menu for the week, right? He's not doing anything like that. He's got advisors and helpers who are deciding economic policies and things and helping him reign. But the idea of a 12-year-old It's kind of scary to think about, reigning in the southern kingdom over all of these groups of people. But here's the thing. He started at 12 years old, and as we joked just a moment ago about Tom and Barbara joking about them getting married at at five years old, he did start reigning when he was 12, but he also has the longest reign in Israel's history. He did start so young that it lasted, as it tells us in verse number one there, for 55 years in Jerusalem. Now, I need you to take note. It's not 
it's not identified in your bulletin necessarily, but he had the longest reign in Israel's history. And by Israel, I mean the entire nation of Israel. We're talking about two kingdoms, the north and the south. When you put all 38 kings together, he was the longest. I forgot to look again yesterday and remind myself, but I think there was one more who maybe got into the 50s, early 50s, or, or year 50, but he was the longest between all of the kings in Israel's history. But we would also say that he was the worst in Judah's history. Now, I'm not prepared, and I don't think it's worth our time this morning to really quibble about it or to argue about it, but when we say Judah, we mean the southern kingdom of Judah. That's where he reigned, in the southern kingdom. If you go through the northern kings, you don't make it too far down before you find a man by the name of Ahab. And and we could spend a lot of time arguing about, you know, going through the list of things. We're going to do it with Manasseh in just a moment. But... Of all the 38 kings, he served the longest in in both kingdoms. But he might have just been the worst in Judah's history because of how evil Ahab was. You could make an argument about that. But of the 19 kings in the southern kingdom, I think you would say he was the worst. He was the worst. Now, that's some facts about Manasseh. It kind of helps us to to understand a few things as we begin. But, But secondly, this morning, let's try to understand some history some history. The very first thing that we read about in 2 Kings chapter 21 when it comes to Manasseh, besides those basics in verse number 1, is found in verse number 2, that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Go back in your minds, if you can, all the way back to the book of Joshua. Go to Judges, and even further back than that to Exodus and the law that was given. And time and time again, God said, do not intermarry, do not intermingle, separate yourself from the people of the land because they're evil. They didn't often, but even if they did at times, inspired scripture says that it doesn't matter because Manasseh led them into evil evil worse than all of those other evil nations had done. Now, if you're there in 2 Kings chapter 21, let's follow the spiral of sin down, down, down. Verse number 3 tells us that he undid what his good father did. We certainly don't have time to talk about Hezekiah, but Hezekiah's reign begins in 2 Kings chapter 18, and he is one of the good guys. He's one of the good kings in the southern kingdom. He's done some good things, but verse 3 of chapter 21 tells us that that Manasseh undid all of that. He raised up the altars for Baal. He also built altars in the house of the Lord in verse number 4. Let's keep going. Verse number 5, he made his son pass through, or verse number 6, he made his son pass through the fire. Now, we don't have time to dig deeper into this, but do a study on that phrase. Just just do a a simple search on that phrase, making son or children pass through the fire. And what you'll find out is that means sacrificing your son or your child on an altar, burning them to death. That's what he did to his children. That's who we're talking about. When I say you are the worst, I'm not trying to exaggerate for effect when it comes to Manasseh. He sacrificed 
his children. This is child sacrifice, plain and simple. Verse 6 and part B, he provoked God to anger. Then look at the language in the New King James, if you have a New King James in front of you, in verse number 7. He even set a carved image of Asherah in the house of the Lord. And you know that, right? You know that idea? I think it's just the New King James. But the New King James says he even set a carved image up. You've used that before, right? Well, he did this and he did that, but he even went that far, right? That, that's carrying it out even further. And so the New King James, the translators, for whatever reason, use the language to get us to understand that it's going further, that it's going farther down and away from God. Yes, he did this, and yes, he did that, but he even went so far as to have this altar, this carved image in the house of the Lord, verse number 7. What about verse number 9? He seduced Israel to do more evil than the nations around them. And even verse number 16, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. I'm not exaggerating. I didn't live then, but I'm not exaggerating. I think when we can say that Manasseh was the worst. That says enough, I think that phrase there about shedding innocent blood, filling Jerusalem, the streets of Jerusalem filled with blood based on his leadership, that says enough. But you know what else is interesting right here, and you won't find it in your Bible, but Jewish tradition, and it goes further than, than inspired scripture, it's not from inspired scripture, but Jewish tradition says that Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, was sawn in half under the reign of Manasseh. Now, that's, that's Jewish tradition, and sometimes that's, that's written. It's not inspired, but, but people believe that Isaiah was cut in half. There's a reference in Hebrews chapter 11 to people being cut in half, and some people believe that when it talks about Manasseh shedding innocent blood, that Isaiah would have been part of that here in this instance. He, his evil is so much. But look again at verse number 13 in the language of God. When God says, I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Think about God being angry enough, being provoked to anger enough, to having said about someone that I will wipe them off the face of the earth, I will wipe them clean, I will take care of this. Manasseh did evil in the sight of the Lord. And again, from this passage back in verse number 12, God says, I am bringing such a calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. Again, that's New King James. But what a thought that even the nations around them might find out about what God is saying about Jerusalem and they will fear. And they will say, as we sometimes do, Boy, I'm sure glad I'm not him. I'm sure glad I'm not getting punished like them. Their ears will tingle. How awful, how tragic. Manasseh, he's the worst. But of course, as we think about it, 
And we think about the well-known broadcaster Paul Harvey who would say there's a little more to this story. And let's think about the rest of the story. Go now in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. See, if you stop there, for whatever reason, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer of the king stops right there. He goes and Manasseh dies and is buried. But go forward to 2 Chronicles chapter 33 and begin looking verses 1 through 9, tell the same story we just read. But go down to verse number 10. Beginning in verses 10 through 17, because of the sin of Manasseh, God sends Assyria against Manasseh and against Judah. In verse number 11, they come in and they put him in chains and hooks and drag him off to Babylon. And while he's there, he implores God to help him. He humbles himself. He prays, and in the end, at the end of verse number 13, Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. But you see, the good news about Manasseh is he didn't just stop there. We've been talking, as I've shared with you before in our Sunday morning class with the young adults and, and college-aged folks, that, that we've been talking about the plagues. And this morning, and for a couple of weeks now, we've talked about Pharaoh and Pharaoh's hard heart, and how Pharaoh continued time and time again to say, I will not let the people go. I will not listen to God. And even sometimes he said, oh, I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry. Moses and Aaron, please, please ask God to take away this plague. And God would, but then he would harden his heart again and he would turn back against God. Manasseh here doesn't just say, hey, God, I'm sorry. He doesn't just talk the talk, but he also walks the walk. Verses 14 through 16 of Second Chronicles 33, he puts his money where his mouth is, as we say, and he leads the people. Now it appears that while he was the worst, at least for a time, he did have a change of heart. And he is able to turn his life around and serve the living God. And there are a lot of lessons that we could look at when it comes to the life of Manasseh. One of those is the fact that it doesn't seem that the people fully listen Right? Sometimes, even though he's changed his life around, think of all the damage he's done. I'm sure that if he could have had every speaking engagement that he wanted, he would have shouted from the mountains, Look, I've changed. I've returned to God. But it was too late. He'd already set the bad example in many ways. He tried to lead the people. Again, verses 14 through 16. He takes down the altars took away the foreign gods and the idols, repaired the altar of the Lord in verse 16, commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. But as we think about the children of Israel, as we think about this southern kingdom, and as we've said before, son after son after son, Ammon comes along. He doesn't jump back up and grab Hezekiah's good ways. He follows in the footsteps of his father Manasseh. and He does evil in the sight of the Lord. It's a very interesting story, and you've got to take both sections of Scripture to really get the full picture of the life of Manasseh. But certainly there are a lot of lessons that we could learn, and let's quickly look at four of those this morning. Number one, the power of one. The power of one. Now, this is usually in the positive, right? I couldn't think back necessarily if I've preached this before in a particular lesson, but how many times does the preacher stand up and say, there is power in just one? You know, we don't even need all of us together. We don't even need the whole world. If you, as one person, will each one reach one, we can do great things. Just individually, begin with one person. 
But what about the power of one in the negative? You know, we also have a saying that goes pretty far back. I tried to look up the history, but it goes pretty far back. One bad apple spoils the whole barrel, right? One bad person can bring everyone down with them. Back to 2 Kings 21 and verse number 9. Knowing the word of the Lord, 2 Kings 21 and verse number 9, knowing the word of the Lord, what does Scripture say about the people? The people paid no attention. And Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And Again, the parallel passage, 2 Chronicles 33, 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. What's the power of one? One superstar on a team can carry the team pretty far. One bad apple, one bad attitude can bring the whole team down. We need to remember the power of one because Manasseh doesn't do great things being the leader. He brings them all down with him. While there was great work that was done by Hezekiah, his son still went astray. And then look at his son, Ammon, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. The question for us, of course, is borne out as well in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 14. Will we be the light of the world? Will we be the salt of the earth? Will we be the positive example? The one. The one. Some of you may work in a, in a business place or an office where you've got good folks around you. Some of you may work in a, in a factory or a manufacturing setting or, or in a setting in which there are a lot of evil people around you who care nothing about serving God. There's power in one. It can be positive. It can be negative. Will we be the light or will we imitate the world? You remember in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that Paul talks about the world, not being like the world, not being conformed to the world, but shining as lights, shining forth the love of God, being as we should to the world, being the right example. The power of one is great, both good and bad. We must avoid negative influences, but we must also avoid being the negative influence, being the one who pulls everyone down. And here's the thing. Maybe it's not all-out evil. I talked about this in class this morning. But sometimes as Christians in the pews and in the church, we sit there and we say, well, you know, I'm not murdering people. I'm not causing people to go out and to steal or to lie or do all these things. But there are other ways in which we can be one who has a negative influence. Maybe it's gossiping. Maybe it's being a busybody. Maybe it's sowing discord among brethren and problems among people and relationships in the church. We can be, we are one. We can be positive or we can be negative. The second lesson this morning is not in your bulletin if you're following along in the outline there, but here's an extra point for free. The idea that anyone can change. Anyone can change. Do you think you've done bad stuff before? Again, I'm not a murderer, right? I'm not, I'm not this, I'm not that. But, but all of us have sinned. We've all missed the mark. And, and sometimes we say, well, you know, I've lived a pretty rough life. Done some pretty bad things. You're not Manasseh. Manasseh was able to change. We, we remember and cling sometimes to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 11. And such were some of you. You know, there's a, there's a few things in that list there 
fornicators, idolaters, thieves, drunkards. There's several things in that list. But the point is that Paul says, such were some of you. Yes, you were that. Yes, you did sin. Yes, you did do evil or cause problems. But you don't have to stay there. You can change. No one, no one is beyond help. We have to remember that. We need to share that. You know what a person needs when it comes to change? Manasseh change. You know what a person needs? They need time. We're blessed with time right now to change. You know what else they need? They need a soft heart. They need to be willing to repent. A pricked heart that is willing to take action and not just give lip service. That's what we need. The key with that is, as I think about this room, I think about this people, think about our services together, We've all been blessed with time. It could end. It could end today. It could end tomorrow. I don't know. But we have been blessed quite often with time. We need the soft heart, the pricked heart that can be changed. Anyone can change. If Manasseh could do it, then we can do it. But we would notice thirdly in connection with Manasseh changing that sometimes there is the need for punishment. Sometimes there is the need for for punishment. If you were with us last Sunday morning, this was our main point at the end of the lesson that we said that God has always spoken to man by words and required obedience because punishment is coming. I don't mean to be scary. I don't mean to try to use fear tactics. I don't, I don't mean to do any of that. I'm not trying to play on anyone's emotions or thoughts. But the truth is that with Manasseh, punishment came. The truth is, with the children of Israel, that they went away into captivity. And the truth is, for you and for me, that punishment is coming for those who are not faithful. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. It may not be next week. It may not be in my lifetime or yours. But punishment will be coming. And punishment sometimes is a motivating tool. We all understand that, right? Especially those of us who are teachers or parents or adults. We will use punishment to try to help someone. If you've ever tried to stage an intervention, as we tragically think about addiction and drug addictions or alcohol addictions and things in this life, and if you've ever tried to stage an intervention with someone, you step before them and say, we want to help, we want to help, but if you don't help, there's punishment coming. It could be jail time. It could even be death. But there is things that would, could happen. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 6, which is taken from Revelation chapter 3, Hebrews 12, 6, the Hebrew writer says, For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, he chastens. Then from verse 11 of Hebrews 12, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. No one likes to get in trouble, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Punishment can be to our benefit. Manasseh was able to change. Unfortunately, he had to go through the punishment, but he was able to. You know, there's an awful realization that's really only said in the Chronicles account, 2 Chronicles chapter 33 and verse 13, but there's the awful realization that after he is carried away in chains and hooks and carried away into Babylon, then, then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Sometimes there's the need for punishment. It hurts. It's not fun. We don't want it. But even as the Hebrew writer talks about it, it's for our benefit. It helps train us so that we can enjoy the peaceable fruit of righteousness. 
Manasseh was able to do that. And our prayer for each one of us and for those that we love and those as the world is that the time won't run out, that they'll have an opportunity to change. And hopefully even before the punishment comes, before it is too late. Fourth and finally this morning, we would notice from this lesson on the study of the life of Manasseh that humility is necessary. Humility is necessary. As we think about the punishment, all these being connected, the New King James says in verse number 12 that when he was in the punishment, when he was in the affliction, Manasseh implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. I don't think Ricky knew unless he, he glanced ahead at a bulletin and cheated ahead. I don't know that he knew this was the last point, but I appreciate him praying. Not only for my humility that I need, but for our humility as we open up the word of God and examine our lives in, in regards to what God has told us to do. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 12, the Lord himself says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be the one who is exalted. James would say in James 4.10, we know it because we sing it, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 6, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And let me give you one more little food for thought here. In just a moment, we're going to put up the gospel plan of salvation. Do you know what's not on the screen? Humility, right? Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. Humility is not on there. But I would suggest to you that humility is on there. Because you're not willing to repent. You're not willing to go further and be baptized and be obedient unless you have humbled yourself. Whether it was all the way back to Adam and Eve, whether it's forward to Manasseh, whether it's forward to today, humility is absolutely necessary. It may be one of the greatest problems in our world today, and especially in our own country, that people are not willing to humble themselves. Everyone wants to be on top. No one wants to be told what to do. Why would I humble myself and say that I'm below someone else? Why would I say that I'm below God, that there's someone else that's actually told me what to do and I have to obey that? It's not the attitude of the world. But humility is absolutely necessary. It was for Manasseh, and it is for us today. Here's the last thing to note. If you go back to 2 Kings one more time, 2 Kings chapter 21, the last thing that we would note about Manasseh is in verse number 12, we, we read this already, but in verse 12, that God says, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. Keep going. Go forward to chapter 23 and verse 26. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from his fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger was aroused against Judah. Why? because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. Go forward to chapter 24 in verse number 3. Surely at the commandment of the Lord, this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight. Why? Because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done. And if you look in chapter 25, what happens to the southern kingdom of Judah? They're punished. They're taken away into captivity by Babylon. Last week we said that the northern kingdom went away into captivity by Assyria. The southern kingdom went away into captivity by Babylon. Why? Here's the last thing, and it's not a happy ending, 
but it's a sad ending. Manasseh was the one that led Judah into captivity. We don't like to think about our funerals. We don't even like to sometimes to think about what people would say about us. But of all the things that someone could say about us when we die, somebody might say, you know that Joel, he was just really bad at driving. You know, he got several tickets, he had several accidents, he was just bad at driving. Is that bad? That's probably bad, it's probably also expensive, but that's not really the worst thing that could be said, right? That Joel, you know, he was a great guy, but he was an awful cook. He couldn't even boil an egg, you know? He just, he could, he could not cook at all, and, and that's, that's not good, but it's also not the worst. What if somebody said, well, you know, that, he was so messy. I mean, he was so kind, but he was just a messy person. I mean, that's awful, right? He led people away from God. That's Manasseh's legacy. He is the one that led Judah in captivity. Did he have a change of heart? Did he repent and humble himself and change? Yes, he did. Did he do some good things? Yes, he did. But he's also known, and we've looked at 2 Kings, but over even in Jeremiah chapter 15, that it is Manasseh's fault that Judah was punished in captivity. May we learn from King Manasseh some behaviors and attitudes to avoid. But also, may we learn the importance of repentance. As we've said, humility is not here on the screen with this slide that we always show, but it is because you must humble yourself this morning if you want to turn to God. And in humility, you can believe the word of God, that Jesus is the Son of God. You can repent of your sins, and you only will truly change and repent if you are humble. You can confess Jesus as Lord before an audience such as this, and you can't be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, why not? Why not be baptized so that your sins can be washed away and you can be added to the church? But like many people, maybe you've done that, but you've wandered away. See, you've allowed sin to enter your life in such a way that it separates you from God. Just like Manasseh did evil and then repented, maybe you've repented, but now you've gone back to doing evil. Don't stay there. Make a change. Repent of your sins, humble yourself, and realize the power that one person can have. Realize the good that you can do if you're simply willing to humble yourself, confess your sins before God, and repent and pray. Brother or sister, if you're here this morning and you need to come back to him, we love you and we will sing in just a moment to encourage you as well. As we often say, there's no greater group of people than the body, the family that's assembled here now. And one of our elders will be here in just a moment to receive you. We would love for you to change, even as Manasseh did, and even now as we stand together and as we sing.